What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Security Squawk Podcast. I'm your co-host, Brian Horning, here with Ryan O'Hara, Reginald Andre, and Randy Bryan. Welcome to another week, another show. How you guys doing? Good. Pretty good. How about yourself? Can't complain. Can't complain. I think I'm, I think I'm alive now. Back to 100% or 98 anyway? Uh, let's call it 95 plus. I don't know. <laughs> you just never know. Yep. So, so uh, today, folks, we got a pretty good show lined up for you. We're going to talk about um, how Russian hackers are using um, some of your favorite online file sharing applications to ruin your day. Um, we're going to look at a report from Microsoft where they've detected that cyber criminals have figured out a method for evading um, your silver bullet, which is you think you're, you know, your MFA because everybody thinks if they have MFA, they're, they're good. Um, we're also going to jump into how one company survived a ransomware attack without paying the ransom. Uh, talk about an example there. Uh, and then we're going to look at some stats for how ransomware is playing out this year in 2022, knowing that 2021 was one of the biggest years for ransomware attacks. Where are we at since we're halfway through the year uh, of 2022? We're going to update everyone on that a little bit with some stats we found. And then uh, cyber insurance, depending on... Uh, how you do things and what you set on your application, you may or may not get paid. And we've been sounding that alarm for, um, you know, well over a year now on this show that, you know, these types of things were going to become more common. And we're going to show you an example of a company who didn't get paid by their insurance company recently and why that happened. So before we jump into all that stuff, there's always a fee for this show. And Andre, you're going to let everybody know what the fee is. The fee is free, 99, no cost to you. All we ask is that you um, like and subscribe to our page and most importantly, share the content to um, any friends, coworkers, any uh, supervisors, managers, CEOs, to let them know that, hey, I was listening to this podcast and they had some interesting stuff and we should start implementing this or start at least thinking about this. Yep, help us grow the podcast, help us spread the word, help us protect more people from these cyberpunks that are out there. So speaking of cyberpunks, first article we're going to talk about um, came, comes from our friends over at Bleeping Computer. Um, Russian hackers are now using these favorite files sharing, file syncing uh, applications, cloud services, Google Drive, Dropbox. We're going to talk about that right now. So what are they what are they using these applications for exactly? Uh, and why does this matter? I mean, so we've reported on this before, basically. Other, other groups, I think a few months ago we mentioned it. Um, they're using Google Drive and Dropbox because by default, those do not get blocked by, you know, most of your, you know, anti-malware uh, email protection uh, services um, because Google Drive is legit, Dropbox is legit. And so they're using that to basically hide um, their payload, um, if you will. 
And the, that's one interesting thing about this article. And then also their target um, going after Western diplomatic missions, um, foreign embassies worldwide. You know, when all this uh, stuff started hitting the fan in Ukraine, that's another thing we talked about on our show is that we're in a new normal as far as wars go. And, you know, cyber warfare is going to be a very real part of what's going on. The thing in Russia is still kind of a proxy war. Um, so they're kind of doing some of this, you know, um, maybe not against individuals uh, yet. Um, but, you know, if, if this thing goes full on hot, you're going to see this cyber warfare thing go through the roof. And like I said, that's our that's our new normal. But basically, that's what's going on here a little bit. And it's, yeah. it's pretty it's pretty right. clever because um, one of the things that we always teach our users is to hover over the link and make sure that if it is saying it's Dropbox, it actually goes to a Dropbox page or something like that. So I thought that was pretty clever. And also what they're doing is once they get into, if they hack someone's email and then they put this link inside the email, you're like, okay, Joe is sending me an email. I'm hovering over it. It looks legit. You click on it. And then that's when the payload happens on, on your machine. Yep, these are services that people use. They use regularly, and they're comfortable using them. So, so it gets a little bit under the radar and, and makes them feel safe clicking on them. So, let's take a look at what um, they've Bleeping Computer kind of put as a diagram or, or you know, a, a graphical kind of overview of what happens in these types of attacks. So, people really understand the initial payload. Um, is usually always a phishing email, right? And it doesn't necessarily have to be something that leads to Dropbox, but because they know we're using these services, a lot of times it does, right? So it could be just as simple as a PDF gets sent to, you know, we have the user in the middle here, right? So you look at the top left there, you have you know, stage one, which is simply just a phishing email, they open the attachment and probably click on something that's embedded, like a hyperlink. Um, and then that drops a beacon, that's step two, that drops a beacon into their Dropbox account. <clears throat> and then, then that, that being there allows them to put a malicious, basically executable, it's an ISO file, which ultimately, you know, at the end of the day is, is an executable file. Um, and all of this is happening like instantaneously. So, you know, a shortcut is, is executed with a link file that finally loads off that executable, which is shown in step five there. Step six, the malicious DLL is, is run. Um, and then the second, DL, uh, second DLL is loaded into the system. And then there's a decompression of the stage one payload, meaning basically it's unzipping the file, just like you would do on your computer if somebody sent you a zip file. Um, user information is uploaded to Google Drive share. And then that allows them to, you know, that user information, meaning technical information that they can use to then put into this global uh, COBOL strike uh, payload that they're now going to, unleash on your system and now they have a command and control um, established with your domain. So what they do is they essentially, or what all this means is the initial email allows them to do reconnaissance on your network, on your systems. That information gets sent to uh, Google Drive. 
uh, and then that allows them to program their command and control software so they can do as much damage as they can once they get it on the system. And as Randy said, all of this is predicated on your company trusting these two services, right? So the easy way to stop this is don't trust these services by default. If you don't need to use Dropbox, if you don't need to use Google Drive, you can block them at a, a lot of different levels, the firewall, the endpoint. Um, and we highly recommend that, you know, because they're using the trust of these publicly, uh, you know, publicly used or, or widely available uh, cloud services. There are other less popular, more secure file sharing services that you might wouldn't consider implementing because they don't know they're they're guessing that you're using this stuff. They're hoping that you're using this stuff. If you're not, then you can't become a victim, right? That's the way I see it. To take yeah. that a step further too, like if somebody sends you something and you don't have, you know, so in this case they're using, you know, agenda.pdf as, as an example. If mm -hmm. you don't have an upcoming meeting with that person who's sending it to you, you know, don't click on it. Call right. them. Find out, you know, hey, did this did this come from you? Did you mean to send this? You know, are you aware of this? Uh, you know, don't, you know, the the I think kind of one of the themes of what we're going to be talking about today is is making sure you as as the human user are educated on this stuff and are careful with what you click on. Right. So what IT people and IT um, you know managers and directors and CIOs need to understand if they don't have a security person in their company is there's a lot of different layers here that had to be broken in order for this to be successful. And we talked about that a million times on this podcast that it's usually not one or two layers. It's, you know, it's several layers that are broken. So you got your, your human layer because they clicked on the email. You have your, um, you have, you have your network layer because you're basically giving access to Google drive and Dropbox freely. And if you block that or, or don't allow that, this is not going to be successful. And on top of that, you have no ability to detect that Cobalt Strike or Command and Control uh, payload was just deployed on your system, where if you're doing you know, vulnerability management and you're doing uh, managed detection and response, you're going to see this stuff. Um, and, and those are really the things that I see, like there are four layers here that are absolutely need to be broken in order for this to be successful, Right. Yeah. So, and, I mean, and even on the on the opposite side, I've seen instances where the client, they, they had an unsecure Dropbox, unsecure Google Drive. And now the hackers are using their accounts to actually spread it because it's not like the hackers are creating, you know, thousands of Google Drives. They're just using valid, you know, Google Drive, Dropbox um, accounts, putting that link and putting that file in there and then from there spreading it. Right. So, I mean, and it, if that wasn't good enough news for you today um you know now everybody's kind of on this kick uh and i think it's driven a lot of things are driven right now by cyber insurance but i think a lot of people are getting their <clears throat> insurance renewal cyber insurance renewals they're looking at cyber insurance as an option and they're seeing mfa or multi-factor authentication as the big thing that's being required now um I can tell you that that's the case for some insurance companies right now. Other insurance companies I've seen, they've raised the bar and it's more than just MFA. Um, but here's a warning from Microsoft where phishing an MFA is being bypassed um, and they've detected it against 
10,000 organizations thus far. So um, what's going on here? How are people getting around MFA? You know, people are led to believe that MFA is kind of like what you need to be doing right now. And obviously you still need to be doing it. And as we said a million times on this podcast, it's not the only thing you should be doing. Um, But how are these guys getting around this stuff? I mean, a a couple different ways, um, at least, you know, one of them is um, redirecting you to like a fake login site where you enter your information. um, And then when you enter in your, uh, your MFA code, then taking that MFA code and using it to log in on a legitimate site that they control. Um, and then the other one is doing something similar, but basically stealing what's called your session cookie. Um, we've all heard of cookies before. Um, you know, that's the thing that browsers put, put down in their uh, cache, if you will, to kind of show that you're logged in, show that you're authenticated. They use it for advertising, all kinds of things like that. But in this particular case, it's it shows that you're logged in, that you're already authenticated. And so if they can get those and then use your session cookie, um, then they can also um, basically they're getting in without having to use MFA. Right. So Microsoft made a little nice another second article in a row where we have nice graphical representation of what's going on here. Um, and Randy kind of laid it out a little bit. Um, and I guess like from my standpoint, Um, A lot of times when I bring these things up or we show a client like this is how this attack, like we did like a lot of times we'll go into a company and we'll say, hey, we found this vulnerability or we found these series of vulnerabilities that could lead to this type of an attack. Um, And we'll use specific attacks to illustrate, you know, how this will impact your business. Um, Let's say I'm one of those cynical business owners or IT people, and I'm like, there, there are too many things that need to go wrong here for this to actually happen. This would never happen to us. Let's talk about it from that, that angle a little bit. I mean, you guys see, we see this all the time. We see these types of attacks be successful all the time. Do you think this is like, you know, threading a needle here or do you think this is pretty common or pretty this easy is, to do? This is common. Day? I mean, right. you know, it, it's it's one click from one person or from, you know, a very legitimate looking likely phishing email uh, that circumvents all of this stuff. Uh, like you said, a lot of companies uh, and this is driven, you know, it's kind of a double edged sword. It's driven by insurance, but but a lot of insurance carriers are, are solely looking at this as the one thing that they need you to do. Um, so people kind of have a false sense of security with that. So they think, oh, I've got MFA, no big deal. You know, it's safe to click on this because I don't have to worry about that. Um, but that's not the case. And that's why we have other layers involved here. And so, so you, you, know, you mentioned it as a silver bullet. And, and I, I think the lesson learned here is not that MFA is not uh, a good thing to have. It's just, it's not the only thing that you need to have. So there's a couple things in this scenario that could help protect uh, in this instance. You know, so one, you know, having monitoring in place so you can see, um, you know, as an organization that, you know, hey, you know, Joe logged in and he, he passed MFA. But then, you know, three seconds later, there was another login to Joe's account from a different country. You know, that's a problem. Lock things down and we need to see what's going on or, you know, blocking logins from from outside of the country or, or from, uh, you know, machines that are are, are unknown. Um just having different layers and things in place to protect against that kind of stuff. You know, MFA is still probably the, the best bang for your buck as a small organization to make sure that you're implementing uh, to, to provide a certain level of protection, but uh, don't let it be the only thing. 
Right. Yeah. And, and MFA is absolutely necessary and required in in this day and age. Go ahead. What were you going to say, Randy? Oh, just a couple other things, kind of kind of piggybacking off of that. You know, um, even um, so, even like um, limiting down to specific IP addresses, mm -hmm. um, a conditional access that's just based on that. Um, limiting the number of admins. Um, we took over a hacked company um, about three months ago. And one of the first things we did was we, we, we basically took away all their admins because like every other user in the company was an admin. Um, and then literally within 24 hours, someone had logged in from like Nigeria to one of those accounts that had been an admin. And if they were still an admin, it would have been it would have been a nightmare, potentially a nightmare um, uh, scenario. Mm -hmm. And then sometimes we'll limit um, sometimes people will limit just by country. Um, so the attackers are getting around that to where like 80 percent of North American attacks are actually originating from North American IP addresses. So that that's uh, now now less effective than it was like maybe like a year ago, even because. Um, Everything we do, like even this this scenario that's up on the screen, this came about because of things that we're doing to block uh, attackers. And so they figure out a workaround and it's like a cat and mouse game. Yep. I think uh, Brian uh, coined that a cat and mouse game. It's literally what it is, man. You know, um, we do this, they do that. We do this, they do that. And it's just, uh, you know, on and on. So you make some good points there, Randy, and you know, my big takeaway from everything that you said there is that these guys are try are, are doing everything that they can to try to get into your email for a couple different purposes. And inside of that box there in our diagram, they're basically telling you this is why they're getting in. <clears throat> now, a couple a couple of things to point out in this. I don't know if my mouse will show up. It probably won't. But on that last step on the top row there where it says credential compromise and session cookie theft. What that means is, is that they're getting their credentials. <clears throat> they're hoping that the timing of them logging in and the person on the other side doing the action, which is they just entered their credentials too, right? That's not going to trigger an MFA, you know, alert on, on your phone. Well, if, assuming that's how you're set up. But when the hacker has your credentials and then he goes to log in, that then triggers an alert to your phone. And you hit accept because you think it's just a little bit delayed from the one that you did, right? Then what the hacker does is he checks that little box that says, remember this device, right? And that creates that session cookie. And once they have that session, session cookie, you're now that device is now trusted. And that device will be allowed to log in until your session cookie expires. And that's dependent on what your settings are in, in Microsoft. But most importantly, and, and, and what I thought about when Randy was talking, <clears throat> companies have basically done security and awareness training around how to handle things inside of their local network. This is a whole new beast when we go into Azure M365, and companies are going to have to relearn, retool, retrain their employees on how they do things with these services, how they share files out with organizations through things like OneDrive and SharePoint. 
because doing these simple little things that didn't seem like a big deal before, you know, M365, sure, you could share things with your, your colleagues. But with N365, you could potentially be sharing this stuff and leaving it open for mm -hmm. anyone to see, hackers or, or just anyone who stumbles upon it. And this is something that business is going to have to learn over the next several years and learn quickly because, again, we've adopted technology quicker than we've understood the security repercussions of not doing things the right way. <clears throat> and I would say that probably close to 85 to 90 percent of companies don't really understand what they're doing inside of m365 when they turn things on or give somebody permissions to access teams like they're just looking at that as like we're getting work done mm -hmm. and the reality of it is is no from a security standpoint you're you could potentially be opening up your company to an attack or some kind of of data exposure uh, and that's that's the big deal here. Not only are they getting into your emails, but they're getting into your OneDrive. They're getting into your SharePoint. They're getting into your cloud services by these similar types of attacks. This is just one example. Um, so the idea here is, is they get in, they read the emails, they start setting up mailbox rules to what? To infect your contact, contacts, to try to go after them, to try to trick them into phishing to maybe spread more malware or to have wire money, uh, money wired to another place. Um, that's really what business email compromise consists of right now. Um, and as you can see, the last step is, is to hit external recipients. Mm -hmm. Who are those recipients? They're typically the people in your contacts or people who you, they go through your send items and they see who you've corresponded with uh, lately and they try to go after those people using your current business transactions or your current business relationships, you know, as leverage and, and, and the reason that they are successful with these exploits. And I think the other thing too, is you need to make sure you're, you're thinking big picture too. So I, I had something recently where a client came to us with a, with a question. Uh, they, were, they were trying to send banking information to one of their clients and their, their rationale was, well, Hey, our, our email system's secure. So we feel comfortable doing this. I was like, well, what about theirs? You know, there could be somebody sitting in their email and you're sending this information and now, you know, whoever's sitting there looking at things in their mailbox has it. So you, you really have to, you know, think of it big picture and you still want to make sure you're only sending information that's absolutely necessary and stuff that is, uh, you know, important like that, like banking information should never be sent electronically anyway. You know, make a phone call, have a conversation with somebody, eyeball to eyeball, you know, be careful with that kind of stuff. Don't think about just your infrastructure. Think about the, the infrastructure that you're communicating with as well. Yeah. And this is one of the things we all always get is, well, if we have 2FA and we do everything in the cloud, why is it that we need all of this extra security? So something like training your employees or the staff about Microsoft having like a splash page or, you know, something that's branded so that when you go to the Microsoft account, it shows the company logo. It shows some type of verbiage that, you know, belongs to the company that would have also helped in these type of scenarios. So yes, 2FA is great, but culture and, and training your staff and adding that additional layer of security so that even if they were to um, fail on one of these steps, there's something else that they should be looking for. Yep, you can always count on an end user to throw a wrench in the works. So no matter how good your security is, you gotta watch out for you know uh, the, the internal sabotage, other, uh, whether it be on purpose or by accident. Yeah, there's a there's a, a legitimate literal 
um, like, or there was like a lockdown fatigue or something like that, mm -hmm. where people would click on known bad links just because they were bored and wanted to see what happened. <laughs> I'm talking a double digit percentage. Leave that to the security researchers, all right? So I hope this gives people an idea of like kind of how this stuff works because this is new, right? People are not used to this type of an attack that attacks their cloud services. And I don't know, I think it was Memorial Day weekend. I was the one who kind of predicted like this is going to be the thing that starts happening to businesses. And here you go. Like we they're laying it out for you. Like this is what we're seeing. This is how it's going down. And, you know, you know, the number at the top of this article is 10,000 organizations, right? These are the ones we know about. I got to, you know, I, I think my prediction was right. You know, this is happening. Like this, these, these companies are being attacked. Your company is going to be attacked this way. Um, and, you know, I just, know how many organizations in the last 12 months moved to Microsoft's uh, Azure and MF and uh, M365 and all that. And, you know, and we go in and we assess these companies all the time and we see what their users are doing. And it's like, hey, you're doing this and this is what it's exposing your company. And they have no idea. So, again, this is only going to grow. This is only going to become a bigger problem. So just like you're you know, coming up with ways to protect your local networks and your local data, you've got to pay attention to this stuff at the same time. Mm -hmm. So, all right, guys, we got another one here. Um, this is a good one. And if you're listening, we'd love to hear your thoughts on this one because uh, this is going to be an interesting conversation between the four of us. Uh, and this is the company that uh, – this is the article I mentioned at the top of the show where we, where they uh, were a company that survived ransom where without paying the ransom. And um, we're going to talk about this a little bit today and get into kind of what happened here with this company. Um, but I don't think anyone should take any, no, nobody should walk away from this discussion that we're about to have and think like, I don't need to do cybersecurity or I don't need to do ransomware. I just feel I've read this article and I just feel like this company was extremely lucky. Um, they, like if I was the owner of this company, I'd be going to the casino after all this stuff that went down and how it went in their favor. It usually doesn't go like this, guys. And, and um, I think this is also, you know, a, a a situation where the the headline doesn't tell the whole story too it, it, it's getting people to click but what i love about this article is it is it's a lesson learned so we talked about this a little bit last week how you know it would be nice to see these companies that get hit instead of coming out and being all all joyous about how good that they were uh in, in going through it kind of do a blow by blow and educate other business owners that this these types of things are happening so you know this article does go through uh, you know several of the things where where they failed and where they they weren't prepared and and kind of how they had to overcome it so, mm -hmm. um, so overall, we're gonna, i like that part of the article yeah let's dive into it so let's set the stage so this company is named Spectralogic, and um, there were reports from a number of IT staffers um, that things were going wrong in the beginning of the day, and matters steadily worsened within a very short period of time, and the signs of a breach became apparent, and then 
they got the dreaded what I have up on the screen, you know, that ransomware doesn't exactly look like that. Um, but the screen started to display a ransom demand. Typically, they're just a text message that that uh, a text, a, a notepad document or a text uh, document that pops up um, and basically says that the files have been encrypted by NetWalker and the ransom demand was $3.6 million to be paid by Bitcoin within five days or they don't pay within five days. It typically goes up. Uh, so this gentleman, Tony Mendoza, uh, he's a senior director of Enterprise Business Solution at Spectrologic, laid out the details of the attack at the annual Fuji Film Recording Media FRMA conference in San Diego late last month. And what he said was that they started unplugging the systems uh, as the virus was spreading faster, uh, faster than they could investigate, and they didn't have a comprehensive cybersecurity plan in place, and the attack brought the entire business to its needs. So, um, you know, in this article, it goes on to say that the uh, company had cyber insurance and um, it looks like it was Chubb in this case. And I don't want to, I don't want to talk about this whole thing myself. So you got one of you guys jump in here at this point um, and talk about like what happened, you know, they had cyber insurance and what happened there. Cause obviously they didn't pay the ransom, um, but that doesn't mean they didn't use their cyber insurance because they absolutely did. Um, so let's kind of talk about some of the things that the article points out under the cyber insurer provided help. Because I find one of the things uh, interesting is that you know this company did not have a sock in place, which a lot of companies don't have a sock in place. So let's talk about why you might want to think about having a sock in place and why it becomes important if you become attacked. Um, so one of the things about the insurance was it provided for a sock. Um, this company called Ancura, Ancura yep. uh, came in, um, started doing forensic analysis. They determined how the attack happened um, and basically started looking to see what do we got to do to come back from, you know, from this uh, disaster. Um yeah, so they didn't they didn't have one of those in place um, before, um, and that was this was, looks like this was one of the critical components. Um, there's one overarching critical component that they came back without paying the ransom, but this one was uh, one of the top top three, I would say for sure. I know you're dying to tell everybody. Yeah, I am. I'm gonna hold, <laughs> hold, hold yourself. <laughs> so, a um, couple other things, you know, is. The forensics team came in right away that was provided by Chubb um, and their forensic analysis was able to quickly determine that a user clicked on a phishing email, exactly what we just talked about in the last segment, um, and tricked the user with uh, privileged access into clicking on a malicious link. That's just fancy words that mean the guy who clicked on the link had admin rights on his system. Mm -hmm. Simple as that. All right. And the guys in the SOC discovered that the vic that the virus came via a remote user and it had spread over the VPN and then began to look for security flaws. Wow. Like, talk about going wrong. Like, remote user had basically God mode access to the network and to the systems. And as simple as him sitting probably on his couch in his house or at his in his home office, clicked on a link and brought this company to its knees. Um, 
Fortunately for them, their email system was not encrypted. It just sounds like the computers in, on the network were encrypted and the email system uh, stayed unencrypted. So they were able to get the email system back online, um, which allows them to communicate. One of the things I always recommend in incident response planning is have a backup email system that you set up prior to the incident. You know, it might be Gmail, it might be, you know, something like that, because if your email system is down, you have no way to communicate and communication is the most critical thing that you need to have in place to get through an incident, you know, unscathed, so to speak, or with, with you know, as, as little damage as possible. If you can't communicate with your team and, and give instructions efficiently, it, it becomes a shit show and you're giving more time for these attackers to do more. Um, so that's just, you know, one thing I'd recommend. So the next thing that this thing talks about is, is the backups. So what, what happened with our backups? Well, as is often uh, common in these scenarios, the, uh, the malware, the ransomware, either the actual ransomware or, you know, one of their uh, human agents um, got onto the system and was able to basically wipe all of the backups. Except yeah, the backup server was wiped out. Online backups were, were useless. That, to me, just sounds like they were probably using, like, a Mosey or, 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 or a Dropbox or I don't know what the – I mean – we, we did an assessment on a company not too long ago and they were like, yeah, we have offsite backups. It was freaking Mosey. Well, you know how quickly somebody can just go in your Mosey account and delete all your, your backups. It's pretty easy. Um, <clears throat> no data left the premises. Although the criminals uh, behind the attack have been stealing passwords. Um, they were instructed to change passwords immediately. Um but the interesting thing to me was is that they had these tape backups. So the backup server was useless, but they had tapes uh, on cartridges. Um, and the ones were that, that were stored on premise were, were kept offline. So they weren't plugged into the tape drive and they probably couldn't um, undo, you know, delete what was not plugged into the, to the tape drive. Um, now, they're calling this air-gapped. I think that's being a little nice, but they're saying the air-gapped uh, provided by the offline tape cartridges, tape cartridges gave us hope that we could actually get the company fully operational again in a reasonable amount of time. Just means you're going to lose what, you know, if that tape backup was, you know, two days, three days, four days, a week old, a month old, you're going to lose that amount of, you know, work or data change, right? You know, we don't, they don't really specifically state how far they had to go back. Uh, what did, I don't know, does it? It's an initial, oh, so it's going it to take them to recover 30 days, though, 30 days to recover from the tape, which makes sense because it's a very old technology, but at least they had something to go back to. Um, but they were able to figure out that even though it was slow, they were able to figure out that there was a good amount of backup data on there that they could restore, which then basically it's, the article goes on to state, you know, between the insurance company and the FBI, they were given the blessing to not have to go and pay the ransom. Mm -hmm. um, so this is an interesting twist to 
what we normally see out there. You usually don't get that blessing. Usually, you know, it's like you're basically, you know, you're basically leaving that window open until that. I, I don't see many companies ever getting to this point where, where they're told, okay, you don't have to negotiate the ransom because you can restore from backups. Um, How many of them still have tape backups at all? So, that, you know, they, they, they still had that in place. And that was, that was one of the things that saved them. I think the other avenue that made them super, super lucky here was the fact that they were able to, to determine that no data had been exfiltrated. Right. Yeah. With the that, seeing that, that I mean, yeah. most of them are. So they're lucky. Really lucky, lucky. Very lucky. And then, like, I would not take... You're just, and with the back, with the tape backup situation, they're lucky too, right? Because I've been in situations where tape backups didn't restore, right? Because mm-hmm. because the media is just not reliable. We're talking about tape backups. Tape backups have not been the standard for almost a decade now, yeah. right? And to call these air gapped is being very liberal. Because I would never, I think ninety nine point nine. Uh, IT companies, if they go into an environment and see tape backups, they're going to say, we need to get rid of that like mm-hmm. as soon as possible um, because we know they're not reliable. And in this case, they got lucky. And it's mind-blowing how lucky they got yep. through a couple situations mm-hmm. in this event. Um, and the fact that the tape backups actually had enough data on them where they could restore. Um, but at the same time, it's going to take you a long time with that technology to get back up and running. Um, And you're really lucky if all that data comes back, not corrupted. You know, I've just seen too many times where we've not, not in ransomware events, just infrastructure failures where we've had to restore from tape backups. And I'm talking 15, 20 years ago. And, you know, it says, you know, the job was successful and we go and restore all the data and you try to open the the data and it doesn't open because it's corrupted. That's a thing, and that happens. So they're very lucky that that did not happen here. Um, but to wrap up on this on this kind of example here, um, you know, the guy kind of said that they had um, disk snapshots and this off offsite tape, um, and they're kind of saying like, "Hey, this kind of saved our butt." Um, but it took them almost a month to recover. But the bigger thing here is is that the FBI told them. You can't recover to the same systems. Like you, you're like you can't just restore this data to the systems because the malware that's being used here is so deep in your systems, you'll never get rid of it. So you're basically wiping all of these systems or buying new systems. Um, and I think that that's the big hit that they took here is that they they essentially had to do something around that. Um, even though they got lucky in a lot of other different areas, they still had a big expenditure to either pay a company to restore their systems, um, you know, from the ground up, either through completely wiping the hard drives and the information on them or buying new systems and, and standing new systems up from the ground up. Um, and and, and while we, well, we know that they have insurance in here because the insurance supplied the SOC. We don't know what the insurance... Uh, looked like and what what it paid out or didn't pay out. So right. there was right. definitely some pain here, even though they got very very lucky. Yeah. Right, and, and keep in mind too that this company is a data storage and data management company. So they actually sell tape backups. 
So going back to how lucky they were, because if they were any other company, as you said, they definitely wouldn't have, uh, most likely not have a tape system. And um, Brian, you had mentioned about them uh, not having a sock, but this, I Googled it, they're about a 500 person company, you know, not to even outsource this to, you know, okay, fine, you don't have an in-house, but you know, how, how inexpensive it is. And of course we say this after the fact for 500 person company, to have this type of monitoring just doesn't make sense. They, they should have had something like that. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, quite frankly, uh, that's why I harbor better on this podcast constantly is that we are so far behind in where we need to be with this stuff. And I've mentioned it before and I've said it before where, where executives had said to me, you know, we're, you know, we have good security. And like they, they're saying that without knowledge they're they're saying that being very ignorant into knowing what they really should have and we have a lot of work to do as people in our position to educate people on what they actually need to be doing this company you know not only did they not have a sock but they didn't have a side they didn't have a cyber incident response plan they didn't have a cyber security plan um and <clears throat> You know, that's why we constantly harp on that you need to have a comprehensive plan and solutions in place. I don't care how big your company is. You know, we call companies of this size all the time, you know, trying to introduce and educate on our services and what we do for companies like that. And everybody says, we're good, we're fine. If we were good and fine, we wouldn't have as many frequent incidents like this that look like this. Um their cyber incident response plan was cyber insurance. Mm-hmm. And luckily, you know, they got paired up with a very good team of people that were able to help them recover. But like we said at the beginning, okay. these guys were very, very lucky. And your company is probably not going to have the same luck that this company did. Yeah. And, and luck is almost not even enough word to describe it. I mean, they were lucky times a jillion that the data didn't get out. And, you know, lucky, lucky that they had those immutable uh, backups. They, and they need to go buy a lottery ticket when that happens. Exactly. They, 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 they survived this attack by the skin of their teeth. That's the reality. Of it. And I, I think the moral of the story today, too, is, is that too many businesses seem to have the false sense of security, whether it's MFA, whether it's, you know, we've got some security in place, we've got, you know, insurance. You know, none of this is enough. You need the complete package to really, you know, protect yourself without having to, you know, roll the dice and get lucky like this company did. Yeah, we, uh, we just brought on a new client while we're actually just starting the process as of yesterday. And our first point of conversation a couple of months ago was that you need to go out, you need to get cybersecurity insurance. And they were able to get like a million right away. And, and then their insurance company said, hey, as soon as, as soon as these guys implement their, that'd be, that'd be my company, implement their things, then we'll bump it from three to five million. Mm-hmm. Um, but they got them a little bit of protection right off the bat, which, you know, a million's better than nothing. Um, but a million for a company like what we just talked about, I bet you a million wouldn't even get them like 15 days down the road, probably. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, but but yeah, so uh, bo- bottom line is get get that cybersecurity insurance, get your get your full stack cybersecurity in place. Um, and, you know, you got to protect yourself from all over. So we're about 
44 minutes in, boys. We got two more topics we want to cover. I don't want to spend a ton of time on this one, but we want to highlight kind of where we're at with things in 2022. I know we did this a couple months ago, but we're well past halfway through the year now. Um, Threats are evolving. Progress is slow. And I'm just going to kind of skip right down to um, the stat sheet that they have here. And this is from Sophos, if anyone cares where it's from. Um, <clears throat> data recovery after the attack is kind of the highlight of this report. And it goes in to say that 99% of those whose data was encrypted got some data back. That's good news, I guess, right? Some, not all. Um, the number one method used to restore encrypted data was backups. 46% paid the ransom to get the data back. It's still very high, unlike our last company who got lucky. 61% of encrypted data was restored on average after paying the ransom, right? So, again, that 61% of encrypted data was restored. They didn't get all of it back. 39%, they didn't get back. 4% that paid the ransom got all their data back. So, even if you pay the ransom, you only got a 4% chance of getting all your data back. And, and looking at that that 46% number of paid the ransom to get their data back, you know, that's high by itself, but then consider how many there probably were that just couldn't afford to pay the ransom in the first place and lost everything. So I think that statistic's even worse than it looks. Yep. So uh, the article goes into a little bit deeper to talk about, you know, they're getting, when we've been talking about this forever, but they're getting really good at knowing the their leverage points and where they can, what levers they can pull Um and they're figuring this out before they deploy the ransomware. Um, so, you know, that's one of the things that people need to understand is they're getting very good at putting different levers to pull so that they can get paid once they deploy the ransomware. Um, and, you know, prior and, 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 and when they were less mature about the way they did things, they didn't really think about, like, let's make sure that we have a bunch of levers in place before we do this. They just deployed the ransomware, and then they kind of figured out the levers along the way while they were in the middle of negotiating. Um, lower, barrier, lower barrier of entry for people who want to do this kind of stuff because of ransomware as a service. That's going to be true in any industry that matures. Um, and I mean, cyber... An employee at this point could just get upset one day uh, you know, because of a slight from management and decide, oh, hey, you know, I, I've got this option. A couple of Google searches later and, and you know, they're potentially injecting ransomware into your systems. Yeah, so, um, you know, Sophos, interesting thing is that um, Sophos sent out this survey uh, and one of the responses in this survey that I found interesting... Um, was that they said, do you think you'll get hit or do you expect to get hit with ransomware in the next 12 months? And one of the responses in their multiple choice question was, no, we don't expect it because we have cyber insurance. <laughs> um, that was, he said, they said they can't remember the numbers, but it was shockingly high the number of people who said that in their response. And, and that's, that's that they wouldn't be, you know, harmed by it they wouldn't be attacked because they have cyber insurance so that's a complete disconnect from reality of what's going on yeah because it protects you when you get hit it doesn't protect you from getting hit the, the right cyber insurance doesn't protect insurance. doesn't prevent it an will, attack. 
it really is lack of understanding. So Andre and I both live in areas, different sides of the, or different parts of the country where we get hurricanes and you get hurricane insurance. If you have one of the, if you have like a beach house or a condo or whatever, you get hurricane insurance and you don't go like write your check and go, yay, I paid my in hurricane insurance. Never going to get a hurricane now. I mean, you, you, you're insuring for when it does actually happen. And it's the same thing if you get cybersecurity insurance. And, you know, the reality is even if you have a, a big fat insurance policy, it could still kill your company if you got a cyber breach because it could hurt your reputation. You could lose customers over it. You could lose employees over it. Your morale could tank. I mean, there's so many things that can happen that the that the insurance really can't cover or or pay for. Um, so, yeah. And the other thing that this article points out is that in 98 percent of the cases that they looked at, cyber insurance paid out some or all of an attack's cost. Now, nobody should take. Oh, wow! In 98 percent, that's like you know. 2%, only 2% don't get paid. Yeah, a lot of times too, these these insurance companies pay you and then they sue you on the back end once they have you know a case or once they feel like they have enough information that says we shouldn't have paid this, this policy. 94%, and this is the big one, guys, 94% of respondents said their experience getting covered by insurance has changed over the last year. Quote, with higher demands for cybersecurity measures, more complex or expensive policies and fewer organizations offering insurance protection. So we have less companies in the market offering this type of product and the requirements on these things are going through the roof on what you have to do. And 97% of the companies uh, surveyed said that they made changes to their cyber defenses in order to better position themselves for cyber insurance companies coverage. So that means cyber insurance is the number one thing that's driving companies to actually do something now. It's not people like us on this podcast educating. It's the insurance company saying, we're not going to give you this policy unless you do X, Y, and Z. So where are we at, right? It's just multi-factor authentication. That's why we talked about what we did earlier, because that's, if you've gotten a policy in, you know, prior to, to maybe the last, you know, you know, exclude the last six months. If you got a policy, you know, prior to that, you probably only had to do multi-factor authentication and you're going to be highly shocked when you get this year's renewal and the things that they're asking you to do and the things that they're asking you if you're doing. Mm -hmm. um, and that's just where we're at. So, you know, companies need to improve processes. They need to develop policies and procedures because that's what these cyber insurers are asking. Do you have policies and procedures in place do you have individuals designated in your company who are the point of contacts if there's a security incident, if there's a security problem? Why are they asking these things? Because if you don't have these things, that tells them how mature you are in terms of your cybersecurity. And that dictates whether you get $1 million or $5 million or whether your premium is going to increase by 20%, 40%, 50%, or 200%. Yeah. That's the reality. So like we say on this show, there's a lot of room for improvement around this stuff. And, uh, you know, we're going to wrap up here because I kind of alluded to it in my, in my comments there. You know, these cyber insurers are looking for more and more ways to not pay 
and we have an example of it here. I don't know who wants to pick this one up. Yeah, this is this is a, you know, in my opinion, you know, a justified reason. But I, so so basically, what we got here is is a situation where uh, business who had uh, cyber insurance through travelers uh, claimed on that form that that they were protecting uh, their. Uh, let's see, how did they exactly state it? I think it was MFA, wasn't it? Well, yeah, it was MS, MFA for any uh, uh, accounts that had administrative or privileged access. Right. Um, and so then they suffered a breach. Very common question on all, all cyber insurance applications at this yep. point. So they suffer a breach. Uh, they go in and they start doing the forensics uh, to see what was going on. And and what travelers ended up finding out was the only thing that they had MFA on was was their firewall. So I don't know. You know, it, it, it's impossible to tell from this story if this was a case of you know they were you know willfully ignorant. They you know lied on the application. They just didn't know. It did say that the the CEO and their uh, assigned or, or the, the person responsible for the applicant's network and information security were the ones who signed this form. Um, so I don't know if they just said, hey, we've got MFA in some fashion, so we can check yes and didn't really like think about what well, we've only got it in one spot. But they didn't have MFA anywhere else. So you know, this is a case where whether they, they lied, whether they didn't know the answer and answered anyway, or whether it was just a simple mistake, you need to make sure that those questions are being answered and are, are, are true. You need to make sure you're doing the, the due diligence on your end to ensure that they're true and ensure that they remain true while you're with these uh, uh, under these insurance policies because they are going to check. That is part of the, the the system. It's not just a you know you've got an insurance policy, you got hit, you you ask for your check. You know they're going to require certain information from you, some due diligence, um, some forensics uh, as you're going through that process, um, and they're going to ask for that, and that's going to dictate whether or not they they uh, fulfill that claim or, or end up suing you in this case. Yeah, yeah, same thing here in Florida when when a storm comes through or a hurricane. Going back to what Randy said. The adjusters, they come and they look at your sliding door. Did, was it properly caulked? You know, hey, you've had this issue before and you never fixed it. It was negligent. Your roof, your shingles were already starting to um, come out before the hurricane. So all these little things that they're going to look for that when you're applying that, you're just signing and saying yes, yes, yes. And they're going to use it again. They're going to take your money now. And then eventually when you have a claim, you know, from, you know, from a front end enemy, just like that, once that claim comes. Mm -hmm. Yep. And, you know, a couple of interesting things is, you know, they're basically saying that ICS or International Control Services, the company um, who filed the claim uh, that was denied. And basically they just came back and said that there were misrepresentations, omissions, concealment of facts and incorrect statements. And that basically ultimately affects whether they would accept you as a cyber insurance client or not. And because they falsified this stuff, they're basically now going to be on the hook for this whole entire thing. Um, I don't know if the article states whether travelers actually paid and they're. Um, so I, it probably sounds like since they went out of contract, they probably paid and they're looking to get paid back. Um, so they're suing would be my kind of interpretation of that. Um, bigger problem here is that, you know, they want, they want to null and void and rescind the policy. I just looked at what this company does. <clears throat> They're basically a manufacturer for, for the government. They probably had a lot of good information on their network, which is really, really scary. Um, but I got to say, guys, we, we do a lot of assessments on businesses we run into this all the time. We run into people who think like, 
they have one thing that has two-factor on it. And because they are prompted with two-factor, they think that they have two-factor everywhere or they can answer yes to that question. It doesn't sit well with me that they had a person responsible for their security who was also assisting them with this with this application. Um, but it's not to say that I haven't reviewed applications on companies where their IT guy supposedly helped them with it. And the things that were said in that were not necessarily true. And I guess we can talk about why that happens, like why you shouldn't have blind faith in your person that you trust. And it's okay to have a third party risk assessment done to make sure that what that person told you or what you believe to be happening with your security and on your network is actually happening, right? Because why, let's just talk about it. Why would an IT guy or an IT person lie about this stuff? I mean, why would they, or not lie, but why would they be afraid to come tell you what the truth is? Well, there, there's a couple of things. So so one, you know, they know that you're assuming they're doing all of these things. So it's, so it's in their self-interest to stand up uh, behind their product and say that, that they're keeping you protected when, um, you know, in reality, they, they probably never were pretending to be your security provider in the first place. They're, you know, and this is something that we see within the industry. People always want to say that they're helping and protecting. You know, people need to say, hey, we provide support or, you know, we'll, we'll throw some virus protection on there, but we're not really providing security or they need to get into that game. Um, you know, in, in this case, it's interesting, too, uh, because, you know, to Brian's point, why you need a, a third party assessment in this situation. So what happens? So travelers are suing this company, right? And so this company presumably, you know, had this uh, other IT provider, the, this IT person, whether it was in-house or not, um, you know, and they signed off on this as well. So if that company is getting sued by their insurance, who do you think the company is going to turn to and point the finger at next? So if that person... The insurance company, if that was a third party IT company, that you know Travelers is going after right. their insurance company too. But but yeah, and the company might go after them too. But but think about it. If that person what what is the likelihood that, that person has much of an insurance policy to pay out on anything anyway? So you're taking the word of this person who 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 is signing off on this without a, an assessment to to double check that work. You, know, you don't really have a whole lot of recourse. Yes, you can sue that person after the fact, but they're probably not going to have a whole lot for you to sue them for. And it's you know, you're still going to end up you know holding the bag on that. Um, the other really interesting thing about this story too, kind of buried at the bottom, this isn't the first time they got hit. They had another ransomware attack in December of 2020. So you know, kind of the way you read it, you know, and, and making an assumption, but you know, they got attacked in December, and then you know, what, what was their solution to to beef up security? You know, they put in a, a firewall and put MFA on the firewall and, and they think, you know, because how many times have we talked to people where their whole point of reference for security is their firewall? Because that's that's the term that they see in TV and movies. Right. And so they think that was enough. Right. Or, you know, that's what, you know, their their guy decided to sell them that quarter to make them feel like yep. they were doing something when they needed to do a lot more. You know, a, a lot of a lot of IT companies are afraid to be forthright with, with this information that Ryan just laid out because they don't want to make it seem like they're not doing uh, what you think they're doing or what they think they're supposed to be doing. And they're afraid to come to you and tell you that you need to spend more money because they feel like, you know, if, you know, one of the reasons we hear from IT companies as to why you don't go back out to your clients and explain to them that they need to invest in this and you need to spend more money 
is because they say, well, they either think we're doing it already and we don't want to like let them down or potentially open ourselves up to being shopped around uh, with another company because, you know, we're not offering it or we need to charge more in order to offer it. So they feel like that opens them up, um, which, you know, it could, but if you're providing good service, they like you, they trust you and, and you roll this out in a way that they understand this is why they need it. And this is why it's not included mainly because things have changed. Mm. Um, you know, that's the conversation and the responsible conversation that IT companies, IT directors, IT managers, CIOs need to have with their management team. Um, <clears throat> the other interesting thing I want to point out, guys, is International Control Services has 134 employees and they do 26 million a year in revenue. So this company absolutely 100% has the resources and is a big enough company where they should have everything from soup to nuts, should be following a framework, a cybersecurity framework, and have all this stuff buttoned up. And, you know, it's just really disturbing that you have a company this big. It's disturbing to me that you have administrator accounts that don't have MFA on them. This is basic stuff. Um, but we see it every, every week. <laughs> all the time so all right boys another good uh another good episode in the books i think we help people and broke things down at a level that people understand this a little bit more uh anything you guys want to add before we wrap it up it's getting way too easy to come up with articles to have this podcast. So. Yikes. That's true. It's becoming, it's becoming way too easy to, to fill an hour of time yes. to talk about things. Uh, literally, all of those articles, guys, and, and one of the things we uh, I'll ask um, you know our team to do who puts up uh, the, the posts for these podcasts is – you know, link to some of these articles to see that these are articles that were all written in the last seven days. None of these articles are dated past a week. Um, so every week this stuff is, and look, we could do a show that lasts eight hours, quite frankly. Um, you know, I think we started off with 11 topics this morning in the green room and we yep. cut it down to set or cut it down to five. Um, and, you know, that's the reality of the world we're living in. Now, we're not going to talk about ransomware events like we used to be able to because they're not being reported as quickly. Mm -hmm. um, but we're talking about a lot more dynamic things now. We're giving you kind of the aftermath of, you know, here's what happens when you don't have policies, procedures, cyber insurance, backups, all the things that people think that they're doing because, you know, we see we see the responses in, in the cyber insurance applications when they try to do it themselves. And it's like, oh, yikes, you thought you were doing that. You thought you were doing that. Like, we need to have a conversation. Um, you know, that's the reality of the world we live in right now. So hire a cybersecurity professional. Get help with these cyber insurance applications if you're going to go after cyber insurance and get a third party risk assessment. These two things would be completely invaluable. And these companies that we profiled, you know, 134 person company, you're probably looking at 20 to $30,000 for an assessment, you know, roughly speaking, do it. It's information <laughs> I mean, that you need to know to make those business decisions. It for won't even put a debt in the 26 million a year that you're making. 
The other thing too is is the reason we ask you to share this this podcast with people is because people need to know. Business owners need to know the the story. You know, we have no problem finding you know these articles to to do this podcast, but we are looking in industry specific type you know news outlets uh, that that talk about this stuff. Your average business owner you know is looking at you know major news networks that aren't talking about this stuff. So they don't understand that it's going on. This isn't sexy news. Um, so sharing sharing this information with people who need to know it could save their business. It's not in the Wall Street Journal. It's not. Uh, it's not in Forbes, at least on the front pages. And it might end up in like an industry publication that you like to look at, but it's probably going to be one of those stories that gets written about maybe once a year. They're not going to be talking about it every month, every quarter. Um, you know, so this is why we ask you to share our podcast. Get us out there. Maybe one of these publications, these industry publications, will pick us up, and they'll, you know, like we, you know, we've been interviewed with other organizations before. The four of us have gone on and done a similar type podcast with other organizations because they picked up our podcast, and we're happy to do those types of things. Um, you know, to get the word out and you know to help you you know, get some content around, around this stuff in a format that, you know, people will understand. So, all right, guys, thanks for your time. Another good show. We'll see everybody next week. Take care. See you later, everybody.